Every time I come back to the stage, it seems that somebody else has come and found the Craig Keener commentary and found the page where the guys crossed out Jesus and put Christ. It's like he's becoming the star of the show at this conference. I don't quite know why. I'd love to know what the story was there. Um, I wanted to start with just space for a couple of questions from the previous session. Obviously, this is after lunch. I know, you know, I've taught after lunch before. I know it's not the easiest to hang in there, so we'll try and keep it moving and lots of back and forth and stuff. But any questions to start with? Yes. 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 Okay, good. So I have a question about the martyrs. Um, obviously, at the start of the vision in chapters four and five, there are no people, but then you find the martyrs very quickly appear and become actually pretty central characters. They're not just there. They're, they're, their cry and their interaction with them is critical. So what's the deal there as it relates to heaven and hell? I think the answer is, if you wanted to map this onto eschatological timelines, I think once you're obviously... The events of Revelation 4 to 19, for me, take place through history, and actually for to half of chapter 20 as well, through human history. So we're alive in it, but as soon as somebody dies, their soul is in the presence of Jesus and is in the presence of the Father, and in that sense, ascends to heaven as well. And that's what the martyrs are. They are the people who have been killed for their faith in that context. So I think, it, from heaven's perspective, it's the intermediate state. It's always the intermediate state for somebody in heaven's perspective, isn't it? From the moment Stephen dies or the first Christian martyr, that's, you know, Stephen might be, you know, the first time he gets there, he might be on his own. He could somebody show me around. But after a short while, there's lots and lots of them. And by the time even Revelation's written, there's many hundreds or thousands of them who've been killed for their faith. And of course, that number is now in the, you know, hundreds of millions, I expect. Um, so that, I th- that's how I, t- you're right, Rich. Are you raising a hand of victory there? Oh, it was a question. Oh, sorry. You, you, you sort of had your hand raised in sort of in a fist. And I thought, are you saluting your own impending martyrdom? I don't know. Um, I'll, okay, I'll come back to you in a second. It's just you standing in a completely different place and waving your fist. I thought, what is this? Um, you can take the man out of South Africa, but you can't take South Africa out of the man. Um, yeah, so I, I, that's what I think is going on there. And I don't think that should be understood in the same sense as the new creation or hell. I think that's... The, the, that's where we go when we die, if, you know. Um, so, Rich, sorry. Sorry, sorry, also on martyrs. You should feel free to just take another walk around as well. I just, <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I'm just wondering about the complete number of the martyrs. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So where do we, would we go anywhere in the Bible to see, how, you know, why there need to be more or even how many there will be? It's like, you know, is, is it the case that Christian number 170 million... 297,000, whatever, is the, the last martyr, and when that happens, we're, we're done. I don't know if... I think to, to read that kind of thing would, to me, slightly overread the genre, I think, to, to get a little bit too... Clearly, we're not going to come up with an actual number anyway. And I think it's a little bit more in the realm of we don't know the day or the hour, but I think the... I don't think we're given an answer in the context of... Um, in the context of at least Revelation 6, why they're told to wait. I think you do... Um, I'm going to make, oh, I don't know whether to make this point now. I think you do in the point of, in the context of something like chapter 12, where it says they overcame him by the, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony or witness, or it's, it's actually, the, as you may know, the word testimony, witness, come from uh, the same word as the word martyr, right? as when we use the word martyr, it's the Greek word for witness, because they love a lot, not their lives even to death. And I think there is something about the fact that Christians glorify and witness to the triumph of the Lamb by dying for him, and that that is, in a sense, that's the ultimate, that's even what 
you know, patriotic Americans say about dying for your country, isn't it? Or you know, we said, Dulce et decorum est. It's like the, you lay down your life for your country, that's the highest offer of the last true measure of devotion. Is that, is that Lincoln? Or, and I think, in a sense, that's what martyrdom is for Christians. And so there is something about people showing how prize-worthy Jesus is by dying for him that seems to be enacted in the message of Revelation. And maybe that's why, but I don't think we ever get a, a completely straight answer to why there need to be more. Um, but we've probably got a couple of clues there. So I'll go, let's go Colin first, and then I'll come to you. Does that link Andrew to Colossians 1? Does it link to filling up Christ's afflictions in Colossians 1? Um, I'd never thought about it, but probably Yes. It's a slightly different application because Paul is taking on more of the sufferings of Christ in his life, whereas the martyrs talk about almost a multiplication of the number of people who suffer. But I think the principle seems to be there that the worth of the death of Christ is shown somehow by the sufferings that people go through on his behalf. And I think that's a pretty common biblical theme. So yeah, in that sense, I think they are connected, yeah. Hang on, we'll come to... <laughs> Just not that on the head at you know five past two. Yes. Could you could you comment on the relationship between time and eternity uh, in sixty seconds? Um, my favourite comment on time and eternity is actually when Augustine starts talking about it in the Confessions, and he says time is that thing is one of those things where. I know exactly what it is until someone asks me what it is, at which point I have no idea what it is, which I just think is a really good picture, actually, of time and eternity. So I know how this works until someone asks me to explain it, at which point I find myself in a total funk. And so, I'm, in that sense, I agree. I think the way I'm reading Revelation, though, is that the, there is a, a, a moving chronology and that we are moving through human history to some degree. And, that I, and I definitely don't... I know what I don't believe. I don't believe that on death, human beings become eternal in the sense that all moments appear to be equally present. I don't believe that chronology disappears when you die. I think you experience waiting. And I actually, Revelation 6 is one of the... the, I often, some of you have been taught by me in other contexts, and I've asked that question, and I've said, to me, Revelation 6 is one of the key texts that suggests that we're not eternal now in in the new creation, because they're very aware of the passing of time. They're very aware that God has not yet acted, and they've seen the fall of... They've seen the execution of... Stephen, and then of James, and then of many of the apostles, and then of many of the believers, and even the fall of Jerusalem or whatever, and they're aware this has still not come about. What's going on? Why are we waiting? So I think it, it clearly indicates that human beings, to me, it clearly indicates that human beings experience temporality and chronology after death. Um, and, and that time doesn't disappear for us in the way that, to a degree, space is reinvented as on death, because obviously, if, until the new creation, you're not living in a body. But time, I don't think the same thing is true. But beyond that, I, don't, I, I can't cash out time and eternity and what it's like to live in the, you know. I, I think we remain temporal creatures into infinity, as strange as that sounds. I, I, I don't think we ever experience an eternal now. I think we live sequentially and temporally. I don't think anything in the Bible suggests that time disappears from human experience on the moment of death or resurrection so it obviously doesn't mean what time for us in partly is marked by death as in time for us is so bound up with the reality of death you know every second is a moment closer to death that's partly why we count it in the way that we do it's partly why we mark the years uh, birthdays or whatever so it's very difficult for me to understand what time means when there is no death and no end point 
but I don't think that means it disappears. And I think the martyrs suggest you experience temporality. But I'm sure there are people who've written great stuff on it. I just, every time I've read anything on it, I just find myself confused. So I, that's, I'm just, yeah, that's where I stay, I'm afraid. Cool. Luke. Yes, the iniquity of the Amorites, yeah. So, so the mix, he's saying, Luke's saying, the wait until the number of martyrs is completed is reminiscent of God saying to Abraham, wait until the, wait, you're not going to inherit the land yet because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete, but you're going to come back in 400 years and then you're going to take the land and both lands are taken by a mixed multitude. And um, for me, that's a ripple of applause, I, I would say. I'm, I'm certainly going to give you a little bit of one myself. That's a... <laughs> Please tell me that is not in a book I wrote and I didn't realise it was. Okay, that would be really awful. That would show you just how much Alistair Roberts is the brains of the outfit in that team. Oh, dear. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move on and we're going to read Revelation 8 and 9. In, in, in a chunk and talk a little bit about what probably for me is, you know, includes the hardest chapter in the Bible. Well, yeah, the strangest chapter, certainly, Revelation 9, I think. Um, we're going to start reading at verse 6 of Revelation 8. Now, the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood. And these were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up and a third of the trees were burned up and all green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet and a great star fell from heaven blazing like a torch and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet and a third of the sun was struck and a third of the moon and a third of the stars so that a third of their light might be darkened and a third of the day might be kept from shining and likewise a third of the night. Then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who don't have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and won't find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon and in Greek he is called Apollyon. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. 
Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mountain troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents with heads and by means of them they wound. The rest of mankind who weren't killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshipping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. And the context of this, that's weird, yeah? We're all, yeah, I imagine that didn't need saying. Um, In the context of the story of Revelation, we are now really coming towards the climactic bits of John's commission. And as much as it might seem like a slightly strange way of doing it, I think it can help us to map John onto Ezekiel and the commission of John and the commission of Ezekiel just to explain why I, in a way, see Revelation 1 to 11 as a very long, elaborate, dramatic build-up to the message that John preaches in chapters 12 to 16 and beyond, actually. But that in a sense, you, you, we don't normally do things like that, do we? We have a, a commission and, you know, how I, how I came to be a significant person, bit of the story, it's very short. What I did when I was doing my thing and then how it ended. That's generally how our biographies and narratives work. But in the case of John, I think the, the introductory bit to the key heart of the message takes half the book. And the reason I think that is because I think of the echoes between the first few chapters of Ezekiel and Revelation 1 to 11. So the opening half of Revelation, let me come up here, opening half of Revelation is about a book being opened and a prophet being sent. And that, of course, is quite common Old Testament prophetic trope, isn't it? You, you're preparing the messenger and then they get given the message and they get told, you must go, go forth and say this. And it might, they might be like, Isaiah 6, you've got to go and tell the people, be ever hearing and never understanding. Or it might be like Ezekiel, you need to set your face like flint. Or it might be, oh God, Jeremiah, oh God, I'm just a youth. And God says, yeah, I'm going to be with you, you're fine. Or Moses or Aaron. But it happens a lot. But in many ways, the the analogue to that in Revelation is not just Revelation 1. In some ways, it's Revelation 1 to 11. Because of the build-up, the gradual unveiling of the seals, the gradual blowing of the trumpets, building up to the receiving of the scroll in chapter 10, eating it, and then beginning to preach it in chapters 11 or 12 onwards. And so, in a sense, it's like a very, very long prophetic call story with all kinds of other stuff going on at the same time. John's commission sequence and preparation takes 11 chapters. There's an appearance of Jesus in glory before whom John falls face down and is told to write to the churches. Throne of the living creatures, scroll with writing on both sides, gradual opening of the scroll, trumpets. The scroll gets eaten, but it tastes sweet. John measures the temple with a reed. The seventh trumpet finally sounds and the temple in heaven is finally opened. So tab across, the opening few chapters to Ezekiel do exactly the same thing. His commission, sequence, and preparation only take three chapters, but the same details are echoed in numerous ways between the two books. There is the appearance of the glory of the Lord and one like a son of man, before whom Ezekiel falls face down and is sent to preach to Israel. There is the throne and the living creatures. There is a scroll with writing on both sides. Ezekiel eats the scroll. Ezekiel is commissioned as a watchman. The scroll tastes sweet like honey. And then, of course, much later in the book, he also measures the temple with a reed. And we hear about the glory leaving the temple, primarily in chapter 10. 
So, down here, the opening of the heavenly sanctuary and the announcement of Christ's kingdom is not the end, nor even the beginning of the end, but the end of the beginning. And when you get to the end of chapter 11, now the salvation of God has come and the, king, the, accuser, the, the kingdom has come and you know, you, we give thanks to you, our Lord and God, because you rule forever and ever. That happens at the end of the beginning, if I'm right about the parallels here between Ezekiel and Revelation. In that sense, the first half of Revelation is an extended commissioning sequence within the plot. So if you were to see the plot, not in terms of R-E-V-E-A-L, but in terms instead of a prophetic commissioning narrative and then a prophetic ministry, chapters 1 to 11 are the preparation and commission, and chapters 12 to 22 are the prophetic ministry. So I think the parallels there are pretty strong either way, but that's, how, that's what I think the ramifications of that fact might be. Take questions in a, in, about that in a minute after we looked at this. But then the trumpets. Then we got a. There's two completely different kinds of trumpet in the Old Testament, and it's worth knowing what they are. There's actually a bunch of other trumpets as well, but we're not going to make things more complicated than we need to at this point. But you have the shofar, which is made of a ram's horn, uh, and you have the silver trumpets, which are made of silver. Numbers ten. They are totally different. As in, I mean, you hear you you read the read it, the Bible, and you get the word trumpet. You assume they're the same thing, but yeah. If you've ever tried to play, well, to be honest, I've never tried to play either instrument. They both look very difficult to me, but a silver trumpet and a shofar are going to sound totally different. Um, and so you, you've got the shofar is the thing that's blown in Joshua as they're walking around blowing horns in that sense. Whereas the silver trumpets are the ones in numbers that, John, that God says you have to hammer these out of silver and then you blow them in order to prepare Israel to move camp. The shofar is an announcement. So again, we're starting in the clouds moving around. The shofar announces war. Seven priests blow seven trumpets as they march around Jericho seven times on the seventh day. So seven trumpets, we know all about seven trumpets. We know that cities fall when seven trumpets get blown. That the city that has set itself up in rebellion against God and opposition to God's people is going to come tumbling down and not even going to need to lift a finger. So we know that's going to happen. Um, whether Jericho becomes Jerusalem, I'll leave for you to decide. But there are affinities there, I think. And then the enemy city collapses as Babylon also will before the trumpets. That's totally different from the silver trumpets, which summon Israel to worship and or to move camp and accompany sacrifices and feasts. So when you read Numbers and you see what are the trumpets used for, sound the trumpet and summon people to a feast. Or you will blow the trumpet and it will prepare you for the Day of Atonement or whatever it is. That's not the shofar. That's not preparing for war. That's like... I mean, I imagine neither of those melodies were, melodies were quite what they are. But when I'm thinking about shofar, I think about that scene in Return of the King when the oliphants arrive. Do you remember? They come out and you can just hear the... And all of these huge things. And they all go, oh, the Pelennor Fields battle at the end of Return of the King. Yeah? You've seen it. Good. You've seen it. Yeah. You don't like Song of Songs, but you like that. Okay? So everybody looked. And, and it's, that's the, it's the noise of goodness. It's a threatening, powerful... You are gonna, this strikes fear into the heart of people. The enemy has got trumpets. What, quite why that would be true, I don't know, because you know, it clearly wouldn't be true if they were playing the xylophone or whatever it was, ding, you know, the triangle. Um, but for some reason, it's, a, it's always been, most cultures have that, that there is a declaration of war through the blowing of a trumpet. And that happens a lot in the Old Testament. Sound the trumpet and gather people to me. We're going to muster the troops. That's a, common, that's a warfare theme. But the silver trumpets are not that at all. That's much more to do with worship. Hence the title of the page, Worship and War. That the silver trumpets are there for feasts and sacrifices and days of rest and days of atonement. The Feast of Trumpets was on the first day of the seventh month, prepared for the day of atonement. And so this is Kirsten's phrase, I like it though, trumpets then symbolise either worship or war. So here the trumpet sequence prepares for war in chapters 8 to 9 and worship in chapter 11. 
as well as the Day of Atonement. Or if you prefer your alliteration to be a little bit fruitier, trumpets evoke Jericho, Jubilee, Judgment, Jerusalem, Justice, Joy, and Jesus. If you go through the Bible and see actually what are, what are the various things they do. They, they actually do, and that's not just because they begin with a J, but they do. I mean, Jesus is the, the one that unlocks the other six, but they, in each case, trumpets are associated. They are associated with Jerusalem, with the you know, pouring out of oil on the Davidic king. Uh, they're associated with, obviously, the Jubilee and you know, justice coming and judgment coming. And of course, joy and celebration. So there's quite a, trumpets are very meaningful in scripture. And, but those two key prongs of worship and war are what I think these trumpets are preparing us to see. Which is why it matters that they're trumpets rather than any other build-up sort of instrument. So then you've got the seven trumpets come in order. In fact, no, I said I'd take questions. So let me do that. Okay, anybody with any questions so far on chapter, chapter eight and or trumpets? Yes. Yes. Have I got that wrong? Am I saying, have I mistakenly said that it was the shofar that was blown for the Day of Atonement? Have you gone to check that? Is that why you're saying it? And I've just mistake, I've made a mistake. Right. No, I didn't. I've, I've got that wrong. Then I didn't realise that. I thought I thought that was the silver trumpet that was being played for the for the Day of Atonement. There you go. I haven't. I didn't actually. Go, I haven't been back to Leviticus in in. I didn't read from it just then. I was just quoting it from um, from memory. So I didn't know that. In which case. Sorry, so you're saying today Jewish people blow the shofar, they don't blow the silver trumpets. Well, I don't think there are any silver trumpets today. Are they, 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 as in the purpose of the silver trumpets is to call Israel to break camp when the cloud goes. So I've... To be honest, I think I'm going to need to do some work offline on that because I thought that was the silver trumpets and I may be wrong, but I, I don't... I'm looking in the text and thinking I don't know what quite except an assumption about what the, the trumpets, the way that the silver trumpets function in numbers and calling to people to festivals, I didn't actually, I've never checked that that wasn't the shofar. And if it is today, that either has changed or I've got it wrong. I don't know which it is. I better, I'll look into it. I'm, or prob- realistically, probably somebody else in this room with Wi-Fi and a slightly nerdy mind will look into it and be able to tell us in about five minutes which it is. Um, and yeah, so I may, have, I may have got that wrong. I didn't, I have not heard that. Um, other, who was the other? There was another question over there. Correct. Well, you, you are at least saying that it, it was taking place in and through the events of the period that John is describing, yes. And you're probably, you're certainly going to see, I, I do hold this, obviously, I'm, I'm previous enough to go, yes, the Jericho that comes crashing down is Babylon. Uh, obviously, as you can, you'll ask our special guest tomorrow, as I'm sure you will, or those of us who are convinced that it's not, Babylon is not Jerusalem. One of the things you then have to work out is, well, what is it then? And, or is the entire thing just an elaborate symbol that doesn't really relate to any city ever falling? Because I think if you say Babylon is Rome, but it never really fell, or it didn't fall until 476 or 1454 in the, in, or 1453 in the East, then you, you've just pushed 
the symbol so far back that I'm not sure anyone in the first century would make sense of it. So I tend to say, yeah, the, Jericho, the city that's going to fall down at the trumpets is Babylon, and I think that's referring to the fall of Jerusalem. But obviously, if you go with Jerusalem is Rome, you, you will handle that whole thing differently, I suspect. Um, yeah, any others? Anybody, any news on the shofar simple tr- silver trumpets incident? Hello? What, in, the, in Leviticus? Yeah. It's a 25.9, it's a shofar. The loud trumpet on the 10th day of the 7th month. Yeah, okay. Okay, so either way, I think the point, in some ways, of course, the point of this page is to say that trumpets denote those two things and are used in both ways. What that does do is to complicate the division of them between worship trumpets and war trumpets that I've made, and I've just got that wrong, I didn't, that's, but I didn't know that. I didn't realise it was a shofar in Leviticus 25.9, so sorry about that. Okay, I will, I will follow up on that because I want to go back to a couple of sources, I've, but I, I think it may be that it's mentioned in numbers and that's why I've... In some ways, I've referenced Leviticus, but got it from Numbers and then got the references wrong. But I will look into that. Okay. Seven trumpets and seven seals. Obviously, as we've probably already picked up, there are a lot of parallels between the trumpets and the seals and the way they work. But I think there are also some parallels with the days of creation. And some, is this another slide that's not in your notes? No, it is. Okay, good. I can see, whenever I see people taking photos of the screen, I worry that I've mistakenly omitted a slide. But I think they're also overlapped with the plagues of Exodus, and that's important because you have you know, the, the trumpet and the seal, which the first trumpet goes up on the earth, um, and you have fire and blood destroying a third of the earth, which is not dissimilar to hail and fire falling and bringing judgment uh, in Exodus. You obviously, the sea, the fiery mountain destroys a third of the sea, and the rivers, wormwood destroys a third of the water. You obviously, days two and three... <coughs> You have the sea, and then the, the sea, and then the rivers, which would first emerge on day three. But you also have plagues, which represent those as well. The Nile turning to blood, and who knows? But Vesuvius, if, depending on when Revelation's dated, if you date Revelation later, then the fiery mountain that causes death and destruction to people in the Roman Empire is obviously going to be read through the lens of Vesuvius, which most of us have heard, heard of through Pompeii. Um, so you have some associations there. The heavens, in some ways, is the clearest one. Right, a third of the sun, moon, and stars is obviously a day four thing, as we saw before. But it also echoes the plagues, where you have darkness over the land. But then the, the payoff for me comes when the locusts arrive. Because by now, you're, if you're thinking in Exodus terms about the plagues, by the time the locusts arrive, you realise, ah, yeah, this is a familiar trope, and I'm not supposed to imagine locust, scorpion, flying Apache helicopters, or whatever they may be. I'm imagining, you know, the first woe is these locust scorpions together. And then the second woe, you get the... I'm calling it hippo lions or horse lions, um, which fight back. We'll talk about them in a moment, um, and the two witnesses. But again, I'm going to see some of these themes as being echoed in the Exodus story, that you have Moses and Aaron witnessing together before Pharaoh, and you have locusts who come, and you have plenty of plagues all the way through. And then, of course, the seventh is, I suppose, analogous to Passover. So we've looked at some of the correspondences between the trumpets and the seals with a quarter escalating to a third, And we've seen some of the parallels with the days of creation, but here we're also seeing some of the parallels with the plagues. And a point that I just... I like this as a... You can make this point preaching Exodus as well, but I like it. 
The plagues, like all judgments, actually ultimately reveal what's already true of that which is being judged. That's how judgment functions. It's a Romans 1 thing. And so God handed them over to what they were or what they wanted. So the Nile is a river of blood already before it turns to blood because it's the place that Egypt's been throwing the baby boys. It's a blood river that gets exposed for what it is as a blood river by literally being turned into physical blood. But it's already a bloody river before that day. The sky in Egypt is falling in on the nation before chunks of the sky start falling out the size of fists and landing and killing the cattle. Right? The, sky, the sky is imploding and in some ways the hailstones are a way of showing because obviously the way they conceived of the firmament slightly different from ours and the firmament is collapsing in on Egypt even as they're continuing to carry on as if everything's normal. So hail, in a sense, is representing the falling of the sky on Egypt which is already taking place because of their oppression of God's people. God is stoning the Egyptians in a manner of speaking with you know, chunks of the sky. That's how, in their cosmic geography, that's how it works. Egypt is in darkness, worshipping the sun god before the sun goes dark, isn't it? They're worshipping Ra. Ra's not a real god, so they're all in darkness. So when the sky goes dark, it's just an exposure. It's an apocalypse, in a sense, an unveiling of what's already taking place. Pharaoh has already lost his dynasty long before he loses his firstborn son. That these judgments expose, they reveal, they display what has already taken place spiritually, but they make it plain by doing it physically. I think there's a yeah, powerful point, to be honest, for pastoral application, that's sometimes what's happening. So you exercise church discipline, you are effectively saying, this has already happened because of what you have done. If I say church discipline, I don't mean in the softer sense of discipleship, I mean excommunication is a better term. Church discipline is a much more broad term. But excommunicating somebody, or as Jesus says, vomiting out, that's not, I said, I'm not doing this. I'm actually, I'm really, I'm ratifying something you've done. And that's why, that's how judgment statements work. And with a view that you'd repent and come back. But that's how these plagues work too. And I think that's what's at work in the universe in the drama of Revelation 8 and 9 as we see these cosmic signs. Interestingly, the penultimate seal results in a call for the rocks to fall on us and that request gets granted in the first trumpet as hail falls from the sky. Like massive chunks of... It is, like, you know, almost in a horrible irony. The people that said, rocks fall on us to hide us from the Lamb. And it's like, you will face the wrath of the Lamb and part of the way you'll face it is rocks will fall on you. Just chunks of the sky in that sense. So, heavy stuff. Now... Before taking a moment, we will do a couple of questions. I'm sure this will provoke some funny questions or just some funny images. Um, but I think Scripture's changes chapter is the, the locust scorpions versus the horse lions incident, <laughs> whatever we might choose to call it. Um, but obviously these creatures which are locusts mixed up with scorpions are very strange for us to imagine. But they come up out of the abyss and they themselves actually, you may have noticed, are described with using a sevenfold Wasp, uh, or you know, these sort of poetic statements of the beauty, or in this case, the grimness of the individual. And so they get descri- you know, described from head to tail. The head, face, hair, teeth, breastplates, wings and tails. Did anybody spot that as a seven, out of interest? That anybody so seven obsessed, they noticed the locusts were in a seven as well. That's good. So we're finding healing from the sevenness from the previous session. That's good. But the interesting thing about them is that they have stings which harm people, but don't kill them. And scorpions, of course... Um, are used to represent the words of rebellious Israel in the Old Testament. But scorpions, as we're going to see in a moment, are featuring the gospel stories as those who are going to try and, scorpions are going to try and get you, but they're not going to be able to kill you. So it's a kind of an animal, it's a very, very threatening animal to me, but it's one that it 
often is used pictorially to describe a barb or an attack that doesn't actually kill. So it's not the most unlikely thing to see a locust scorpion representing someone who comes to devour and to sting, but ultimately not to kill. They hurt people for five months. Now, to see what you make of this, they may represent the very zodiac-like features of these creatures. So you have Leo, Virgo, Libra, Scorpio, and Sagittarius. And it's just interesting to think about how the features of the hair like the woman and the thing like the scorpion and the like it's just worth thinking about oh i wonder if the five months is even related to the zodiac which to us sounds strange because zodiacs appear at you know sort of the back pages of the daily mail with a sort of forecast of you will meet an interesting man with a strange offer but of course in the ancient world the, the zodiac's a massive deal because it's how you navigate it's how you tell in some ways you know it's related to the seasons it's related to your geography it's a very big deal and for them it was not necessarily astrology it was just stargazing and they could actually see the stars which as you'll know if you're from around here you basically can't in this country or certainly not around here so you have the that's what we know about them but I think that there is something very significant to see from the fact that there are and there is another place in the new testament where you find an association between satan falling to the earth authority and the stings of scorpions which will attack but not ultimately be able to kill believers Right, so this is Luke chapter 10, verses 17 to 20. You might, you might want to flick there, because I'm going to. But this is, a, this is a text that has a fascinating alignment with the message of Revelation. It's a very apocalyptic-sounding text in the middle of a gospel. The 72 returned with joy. So this is talking about the period of the early mission of the church, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. That's a verse that sounds like it's straight out of Revelation. It just pops up in the middle of Luke. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing will hurt you. Nevertheless, don't rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In other words, there are two texts in the New Testament, not one, in which a scorpion-like attack on the people of God is associated with the victory of the church and the fall of Satan from heaven. And so for me, that helps me with this very strange image. So it makes me think, actually, these locust scorpions, these creatures who are symbolized in that lurid way, are opponents of the church. They are persecutors of people who preach the gospel. And I think the question's worth raising, was Paul one when he was Saul of Tarsus? Is that what they're referring to? People who are going to try and attack and hurt and strike the church, but over whom authority has been given to the church, that they might not be harmed or killed. Greg Beale, I just like quoting Beale sometimes because of the way he capitalizes everything and writes very long subtitles. Demons are commissioned to torment hardened unbelievers. That's what he says they are. Lightheart goes, as you might expect, a bit more mischievous. What Acts 8 to 28 tells in historical prose, Revelation 8 to 11 describes in apocalyptic poetry. So this is describing the attack upon the church from those who were opposed to the gospel in the book of Acts. And he's saying authority has been given them to, to them for a season and they're going to attack the church and they will strike them like scorpions. But Jesus has given us authority over the scorpions. Satan will fall and they will not be able to kill us. I can't prove any of this, but I don't know. Again, I'm going to use Howard's line. Of, yeah, it kind of sounds good. I like it. But the locust scorpions are not even the only weird feature in the text. We'll, we'll come back to it in a minute, okay, at the end of the page, because I'm going to get some discussion and questions. Um, the locust scorpions are not the only weird feature of the text, because you also have horse lions. Um, and so we've basically got two hybrid beasts that are running at one another and fighting. Because, of course, we've not only met the, the scary creatures in the first half, we've got scary creatures in the second half of the chapter as well. And there's 200 million of them. 
Um, and they have lion heads, and, but they're horses. So hippo lions or horse lions, and they kill a third of mankind. Now the question with these guys, this is obviously from verse 13 onwards, the question with these guys is, when it says, release the four angels who are bound at the river Euphrates, in verse 14, are they demonic, and are they baddies or goodies? Right? That's a question that sometimes when I'm talking to, you know, so I'm talking about theology to Rachel, and I mention the name of a theologian she hasn't heard of. She say, is that a baddie or a goodie? Which is just a, quite a good category generally. Like, I can't work out whether you're trying to commend them or give nuance about someone who's a baddie. And in some, basically, are these, these guys are obviously baddies, but are these guys goodies or baddies? You see, these guys are obviously demonic, but there is significant debate about the horse lions as to whether they are intended to be seen as angels, which is obviously the word that's used here. Angeloi is the standard word for messengers or angels. Um, or are they demons because they go around killing people? Which are, or should we interpret them as good because they're like the horsemen of the apocalypse, they bring in judgment? And I don't, I don't think it's easy to land definitely on an answer. Um, Beale goes, these are wicked angels or demons. They're, he said, and his argument is, they are hybrid creatures with serpentine features that wound and kill humans. And that's a pretty good, I think, that's a pretty good argument, right? This is a mishmash of two creatures, and in Revelation that's generally bad. Although, not always, because he could say that Jesus is a lion and a lamb, you know. But generally speaking, a creature that has features of two species is not a good sign in Revelation. But at the same time, they are also angels. That's what they're called. They're released by an angel, not by Satan. So it would seem to me that the Locorpians are released by Satan, or, you know, the, the star who falls from heaven, probably Wormwood, same guy, who releases these guys. They're released by Satan, but these guys are released by the angel. And I think that makes a difference. They are numbered, which significantly in Revelation happens to the holy people, but not to the, the world. Um, you know, usually when you see people being numbered in Revelation, it's significant, like numbering in the temple. And they wear gems on their breastplates, which is a priestly thing in the Old Testament, and they're killed to prevent the worship of idols. So I tend to think that these guys are goodies and these guys are baddies. Could be wrong. Doesn't matter that much to many things, but that's how I read the text. If they are angelic cavalry, then their reappearance at the Euphrates would indicate a fresh conquest of the land rather than a fresh wave of disaster. So the, their arrival would be good news. It would be at dawn on the fifth day, look to the east. And then Gandalf, you know, again, if you haven't seen the Lord of the Rings, you haven't lived. Um, the only other mention of the Euphrates in Revelation pictures it as the staging post for the kings of the east to take the land back from the frog-like demonic spirits, which we will get to in chapter 16. That's what Armageddon is. Um, in that case, you would, and I can't believe that this sentence is really being written, the hippo lions versus locorpians would prefigure the kings versus frog demons. That's a sentence that you don't very often say. Um, but I, I thought I'd throw it out there. So, it's after lunch, it's hot, let's think, let's talk. What do you make of that? How might it affect the way you read what is, whether you think it's the strangest chapter or not, is a pretty weird chapter. Does it help you track through the text a bit? And if not, what questions do you have? Okay, take five minutes. Okay, so if it's not to, um, if you haven't already forgotten as a result of that bit of mingling, just keep things moving in the afternoon. Um, what, what questions did you have or what comments did you have back on Revelation 8 and 9, particularly the... Ah, plenty. Good. Actually, Dan, I fobbed you off last time, so I'll come to Dan. I oh, will try and get these all in. I think we should... All four of those should be fine. Yeah. Only those people who don't have the seal of God on their foreheads. Yeah. 
Yes. Yes. I suppose. Yeah. I suppose. So I don't. I don't find that that problematic though, because I think that the effectively the upon whom do let's say that they are basically opponents of the gospel, a mixture of false teachers and persecutors. Upon whom do they actually succeed? Who actually gets hurt? Who actually gets taken out by false teachers? Ultimately, it's not the people who are sealed by God. It's the people who aren't sealed by God. That on whom the others prevail. They're fine. They're not actually harmed by it. The false teaching in that or opponents of the gospel. I mean, people obviously people die, but they're not in, it, they, they might face martyrdom in the face of attack. But the people who are sealed by God repeated in Revelation, are those who are sealed in spite of the best efforts of empire and religion to try and stamp them out. And that's not something that's a... That's not a strike against reading it as Christians being protected. I think that's saying when these things happen, Christians will not be harmed. Well, I suppose here what, what's going on is you've got... There are people who are being tormented. Yes. No, I don't think he is saying that. I think I, well, he might say that. The problem is it's a big book and it may be that he's saying that uh, somewhere. But I don't, I don't think he's saying believers are being tormented by them. I think he's saying believers cannot be harmed by them. But, the, the, but the, if you wanted to say, who are these people in practice? That's why putting back against, is Saul one of them? But actually, I think you say, who, who does Saul, when he's persecuting the church, who does he harm from, the frame, from, from Revelation's point of view, not from Acts's point of view, but from Revelation's point of view, Saul doesn't harm genuine believers. Saul harms everybody else who's either too scared to join the movement or who's thinking about it and then runs away or people who see a friend being dragged off, the people in Hebrews who, you know, let's not open up the warnings in Hebrews, but you know what I mean? The people who would say, because of the persecution upon the church, I'm going to back off or retreat or not even join. That's where the harm comes, I, I think. I, I might be wrong that Lightheart might be saying more than I am here. I... Yeah, it just feels like, so obviously, what you have pulled up is the parallel between scorpions and Israel. Right? Then it makes it sound like, obviously, therefore, it's very likely this is referring to Israel. No, I ah, sorry. And for me, the point there is the, is the fact that scorpions represent words more than scorpions represent Israel. Yeah, so I think the point is there. That's got, and a little bit like um, when you have to do the exposition of the thorn in the flesh, and you realise that the thorn or the barb that appears elsewhere in the Old Testament, and it has a particular kind of reference, which means that's probably what Paul means. I'm kind of doing the equivalent of that with scorpions. They, they don't necessarily refer. They certainly don't refer to flying creatures who come down and. Well, I say certainly, but I would say to to come down and actually kill people with their tails. But I think we're used to seeing them as speech in opposition to faithfulness to God and that's the connection rather than Israel connection Lightheart might be saying more than I am there that is I actually don't remember well I think I think Beale's right that it's tormenting unbelievers but and I and to be honest if it is demons that that's fine you know um it's just they are described in very I I think the parallel still the parallels with Luke 10 I still find powerful I still find the idea that you are not going to be hurt by the scorpions who are going to try and get you, and they're not. You're going to be kept safe. And that that is actually really what Revelation 9 is saying, albeit in much more lurid fashion. And the connection with the fall of Satan we're going to read about in a moment. I, I, to me, I still find, in fact, I have read about it in chapter 9. So I find that fusion of connections to be very helpful, but I can't prove that. And if it was demons, I don't think it matters either way especially, but that, that's why I think there is more to it than just that. Um,
But yeah, it, I, don't think it harm, I don't think it's an attack simply on Christians at all. Otherwise, you, just re, you are reading the text wrong. But I'd be surprised if he said something as... Right. Okay. Okay. No, no, no. Yeah, you may well be right. It's, um, it would be a very dim move to say that these are basically only attacking Christians when the text explicitly says they're not. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. So given the connection between the locusts in Joel 2 and Joel 1 and the locusts here... Do you find anybody who's arguing that the locust that the locust scorpions are sent by God or authorized by God? Um, it depends what you mean, because I think there is a let's not open this can of worms, but let's just go with it for now. There is a sense in which, say, the sense the Davidic census is authorized by God, but also caused by Satan. There's a sense in which the messenger of Satan in two Corinthians twelve is. A messenger of Satan, but it's also sent by God in order to prevent Paul from becoming too conceited. There's a sense in which Job's suffering comes from God because he says, "You, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away." Job didn't sin, but it's also a sense in which it comes from Satan, and that's a common, I say common, but it happens multiple times. So, in that sense, I'd be very happy to say it's authorized by God, in the sense that nothing that happens in God's world is not, some sense, authorized by God. But I think the telling strike against it being a gift of God, to pre- like the horsemen of the apocalypse, is 9-1. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. And then the parallels between that and the name of the star falling to the, in verse uh, 8-11, the name of the star who fell from heaven blazing like a torch, and the name of the star is Wormwood. And I think the proximity of those two texts indicates that we're talking about the devil or at least an, a demonic being who is coming and bringing suffering to the world. And in that sense, it's the devil is the emphasis of the text, not God. But yes, at a broader theological level, I don't think in the end anything ultimately happens without some degree of authorization from God, but that some degree of is a... And I think that's what happens in chapters 13 and 14 as well. <laughs> um, so a lot of bad people I'm eight, sorry the question was I'm 8 years old could you tell me what's happening in chapter 9 um, so a, a lot of a lot of a, a lot of bad people are coming sent by the devil to try and destroy God's good work in the world and God's going to protect them with an angelic army and God protects his people with an angelic army and actually that every time something sent by the devil comes to try and destroy what God's trying to do God sends an angelic army to preserve and actually make war on them. But sometimes God does that by judging bad people as well as demons. But it's a really good question. And, and, in many, and actually, that statement there is pretty much, I, I think that's a great, is a great comment. What Acts 8 to 28 describes in, apocaly- in historical prose, Revelation 8 to 11 discuss- describes in apocalyptic poetry. Not quite for the eight-year-old, but not far off. As in, this is in some ways a very symbolic way of telling the story of the book of Acts about how the church grows, people attack, the, uh, attack the, the people, all the kind of people associated with the people of God, and in doing it are trying to stop the expansion of God's purpose, and they kill a lot of people. But God preserves his people with an angelic army. So, yeah. There are a couple of questions in the, near the middle here. Joey.
Are the cherubim the same as the cherubim outside the garden? The cherubim, the angels guarding the winds, the same as the cherubim in the Garden of Eden? Um, maybe. I, I don't think there's any, apart from the Euphrates connection, I suppose. Do you mean as in, has there been an angel left on post protecting the Garden of Eden for thousands of years and then eventually goes, oh, finally get to do something else. <sighs> you know, maybe, yes. <laughs> um, I, I, maybe the Euphrates connection would evoke that, actually. Um, I, it's not a connection I've made. Um, Steve? Well, it depends, yeah, so how do you write the... the you, the Euphrates incident, I quite like it. Sort of sounds very British, but well, of course the Euphrates incident has put, set us all back a few years in our battle with the demons. Um, but yes. Um, can I, sorry, I'm, this is an irrelevant story, but it's just, it's the afternoon. And it's, I, I just find it so funny. I was telling someone this morning, I was talking to Jeremy about it. Um, the, you know, a few weeks ago when the, they were trying to get unseat Theresa May and Graham Brady has this envelope with all of the names in it of people who, in the 1922 committee who are, are going to vote her out if she doesn't resign. And basically then there was this sort of formal story where he was going to go and meet her and then present her with this, you know, the envelope with the names in it and so on. And a friend of mine who's French just put and just, just tweeted it and said, this is the most British thing ever. Resign now or we open the envelope. And it was, it was just so funny because like in so many stories, I was like, we're going to shoot you. We're going to behead you. We're going to open an envelope. Ah, okay, I'll do it. I'll do it. I just thought it was a very British thing as well. So yes, the Euphrates incident. Um, I think because I'm reading that as a clash between demonically empowered and motivated opponents of the church and the people of God with an angelic army sent out effectively to judge God's enemies and protect the church, I don't map that onto a political battle at all. Um, and I do, and I'm in many ways, do the same thing when I get to Armageddon in chapter 16. I see them as referring to the same basic reality. But for those who read Armageddon as an actual battle between the armies of the East and the armies of the West, or whatever it might be, they will probably also read this as referring to something like that, particularly in a futurist. Well, usually, well, usually that would be read that way by futurists. I don't know if there's a preterist understanding of this as a political battle. There might be, and I just haven't read it. There's, there's, I'm sure there's scope for that kind of thing to be taught, um, rightly or wrongly. Okay, and then there was one more, I think. Yeah. Okay, so uh, why are the locust scorpions told not to harm any grass and trees? What's that about? And if they're not allowed to harm, if the people of God are sealed, which we're told they are in chapter 9, why do you need the horse lines in the first place, I think is the question, okay? Um, why they don't harm the grass and the trees, I don't know. Clearly, in the seals and in the trumpets, a lot of creation gets collateral damage. I mean, in fact, it's, tar it's the targeted recipient of a lot of the judgment. So why... That specific instance, I don't know, except insofar as locusts, you would expect to be creatures that fly in and eat all the green grass. And so in a way, it may just be a way of saying, and these locusts didn't come to eat grass, they came to attack people. That may be as much as it's saying. Sorry? The green agenda. <laughs> I tell you what, if an environmentalist can make something out of Revelation 9, then they should get promoted. Um, it, but it, so in, in that sense, it may just be a, a contrast for what, you would, what locusts normally do is they come in and they eat all the crops. But these locusts don't eat crops, they attack people. That may be all it is. Um, the horse lions, of course, I don't think are simply... They're not actually primarily sent to protect the church. They're sent to fight the demons and actually to strike down a whole bunch of human beings as well. 
So I, I think they, they do, by extension, protect the church in the same sense that the judgment of God in the vindication of the martyrs is sent to protect the church in a, in a sort of you know, behind-the-scenes kind of way. But then it's not like a false teacher is trying to attack this Christian and then a horse lion comes up and fights him and stops him. I don't think that's the way we're supposed to read it. Actually, the horse lion's job that's made explicit in the text is that they go and kill people. Sorry? Oh, it doesn't happen in Acts. Uh, who struck down Herod in Acts 12? Who struck down Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5? Well, that we know of. I can see a fourth is about to join them. I don't know. <laughs> no, no, I... I'm certainly, no. So the question is, uh, if, if the horse lines are there to bring judgment on unbelieving humanity, and this refers to the same sort of period as Acts, which is the argument I'm making, although obviously the text doesn't, isn't explicitly saying that, then how do you make sense of the fact that Acts doesn't talk much about that, and Revelation talks about it, at least here, in a very intense way? And it's, yeah, it's a good question. I think my, my guess is that... My sense is that there is quite a lot of um, unspoken judgment of God through death in the New Testament that we occasionally get odd comments about that imply that it's a more widely recognized theme than we generally think it is. A text that comes... So Ananias and Sapphira is a good example, and Herod is a good example, but also texts like 1 Corinthians 11 are really weird if you don't assume something like it. Paul just drops in. That's why some of you have been, become weak and sick and died, because you've been, you're abusing the Lord's Supper. And... I'm not saying that's horse lines. I'm not trying to get there. I'm just saying I think the idea that God intervenes and brings judgment. You know, there is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying people should pray about that, John says. You know. So I think there's an assumption that there's actually quite a lot of that kind of thing. And that probably until the modern era, you know, I think Martin Luther lived in that world. You know what I mean? As somebody, you know, someone gets hit by lightning or somebody gets the plague or whatever, that, that's an act of divine judgment and so in a way I think although we are saying I need explicit examples of angels killing people to believe this and admittedly in Acts there might only be a handful of them although actually you start thinking about it again well, what about the curse that's brought on Elimus the sorcerer there's actually more of it than you initially think isn't there and angels turn up a lot more in Acts than you expect them to both for good and bad you know well, there's a I know it's not Peter at the door, it's just the angel or the angel comes out of the prison break. And they're everywhere. And I, I think there's probably just in their slightly, much less despiritualized world, the idea that a lot more death is attributable to divine agency directly through the means of angelic beings would not have been at all hard to swallow. So I think if what you're saying is Acts isn't explicit about that, I'd say, oh, totally, I agree it's not. But I think if you were making a stronger argument that Revelation and Acts are intention on the extent to which God is involved in terminating the lives of unbelievers, I don't think they are. I just think that Acts isn't written to draw out that point. But I think many people in the ancient world, and certainly Jewish people, would assume that that's what was taking place. Which, without which, again, 1 Corinthians 11 doesn't make any sense. Because it would seem very strange to single out people who may take the Lord's Supper badly for special judgment. But I think it's just an assumption this happens a lot. That would be my, that's my intuitive response to that. But I, it's not something I've given, I don't give much thought to angelic, you know, death by angels um, hasn't been a major feature of my ministry. Maybe. 
<laughs> yeah, it's exactly. Perfect that spiritual gift. Um, okay, let's move away from that. But I, you know, it's good sometimes to confront the really, really sticky bits and go, what do we think about this? And um, here is a very strange image um, of the mighty angel. And let me, uh, let me throw out for you a, a suggestion. What if the mighty angel at the start of chapter 10, which we're gonna read in a moment, is actually Jesus? What if the mighty angel is actually Jesus? Okay, here's Revelation 10. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head. And his face was like the sun and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and don't write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what's in it, the earth and what's in it, and the sea and what's in it, that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God will be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Then the voice that I'd heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, go, take the scroll that's open in the hand of the angel who's standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth, it'll be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I'd eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. I'm going to be quite quick on this chapter because it's quite short and I think quite simple and, doesn't, and because we spent a long time talking about locusts and demons. I think, the, I think the mighty angel is probably Jesus. I think angelos means messenger, right? So you, we're used to translating it as angel as in specific created being. And in a, that sense, of course, Jesus is not an angel in that sense. He's not a created anything. But in the sense that a messenger from God comes down and that he's wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, his face like the sun, the voice like a roaring lion that thunders, a scroll in his hand, legs like pillars of fire, and his feet on the land and the sea, I think we've got a fairly good shout that that, in Revelation as a whole, would sound very like Jesus. I don't think it destroys our interpretation. If it's an angel, that's not Jesus, but I think that's a pretty elevated status for an angel to hold. And the imagery is specifically alluding to a number of things that have previously said of the Lord Jesus. So that would be my guess. But there is the eating of the little scroll is the main way that the plot advances in this chapter. And the obvious background here, as we've said, is the eating of the scroll by Ezekiel, which tastes sweet as honey. But there is an important difference. When Ezekiel eats the scroll, it's sweet as honey. But, um, but in Revelation 10 verse 10, we hear, I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I'd eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. So we have a fusion, not just between sweet and bitter, and that fusion we still use today, don't we? We talk about things being bittersweet uh, today as well. So that idea that it's both and, but also the idea that I could taste something and then something could happen in my stomach that would cause me to react badly to it and make me sick. That that's actually a biblical image from a completely different part of Scripture. So in Numbers chapter 5, there's a jealousy right. and something you're supposed to do if you're jealous that your wife has committed adultery. And she has to then, if that happens, the woman is told, you've got to, it's a way of protecting women from false accusations, of course. Because this kind of thing, to this day, a woman gets falsely accused of adultery, it will harm her far more than it harms the man who's made the accusation. It might cost her her life in many cultures. So in this context, what happens is that is not, you do not take the accusation on its own terms. 
You say instead, no, we will, the woman will then drink the water of bitterness in Numbers chapter 5. If she's guilty of sexual unfaithfulness, the bitter water will make her belly swell and it will cause her immense pain. If not, she'll be free and she'll be able to conceive children. And we never, as far as we know, see that practiced with reference to a particular individual, but it was famously used for God's unfaithful wife, Israel. Exodus 32, I'm going to grind down the idol and make you drink it. And those who have effectively reacted to the guilt of having worshipped the idol are going to get the, the Levites running through the camp and killing, killing people. So it seems that the little scroll, in a sense, is a fusion of the honey scroll of Ezekiel and the jealousy rite for bitterness in Numbers chapter 5. It's effectively that John is saying, this is a message that is delightful and sweet, but it judges the faithfulness or not of the, of the, of the speaker, but also even of the hearer. The people who are listening, I as a speaker, am being, I'm being tested and I've passed. But it's also going to be a message that I'm going to proclaim and it's going to cause bitterness even to those who hear it because their fidelity will be tested. And the word of God is always sweet to the taste, but it always challenges those who read, hear, or declare it. And ultimately, it serves to judge those who reject his message. So I think the bitterness is meaningful as well as the sweetness. I don't think it's just, hey, isn't the word of God lovely? It's, hey, isn't the word of God honey and bitter? Um, because it both judges and reassures and brings comfort. Then I'm going to read chapter, move quickly into chapter 11, which I think would just need to take a moment's more reflection. Revelation 11, verse 1. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But don't measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it's given over to the nations, and they'll trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These... Two witnesses. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of all the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he's doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying, and they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they finish their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie on the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets have been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. So we have two witnesses here. 
And they're described in a number of different ways. And there's actually a lot of symbolism here that now comes in that will remain with us in an important way through the rest of the book. Well, yeah, we, John is told, you've got to get up and stop, we'll start with the read like a rod, just top left. He's given a, a read like a rod. And there's a, there's a word play there because a read can be a pen or a tool of measurement. And here it's obviously a tool of measurement because he's using it to measure the city, but he's also been given a read that's a pen. He's able to write and to declare and to speak and to use words effectively in the sense that writing is actually a form of measurement, of marking off the true from the false, of the holy from the common and so on. But it's also like a rod, which is a symbol of prophetic authority. So to have a reed like a rod is to be somebody like Moses who stands over the Red Sea prophetically and says, the water will now pass thus far and no further and so on. Or a Psalm 2 rod that gets to rule the nations. So John's measuring activity here is both is both authoritative and prophetic. It's a way of speaking the words of God, but it's also a way of binding and ruling. And, in, and so is the ministry of the church. So is really the ministry of the word. It's a prof, acts of prophetic speech of clarifying true from false, but it's also a ruling function where you actually God exercises his authority over the people of God through the reading and preaching of the word. So there's a read like a rod that he's given. In scripture... The temple in the holy city is only sacred space that gets measured. The profane space doesn't tend to. If, if it ever does, I'm not sure. You get lots and lots of units. You know those long sim, uh, sections of scripture that are hard to read, full of measurements and numbers and cubits. They, reply, they all apply to sacred space. You don't measure farmland as such, unless it's farmland associated with the holy city. You don't measure mountains or things like that. You measure holy space that's marked off for the worship of God. So the temple gets measured and the court doesn't. And the temple imagery is obviously taken from Ezekiel, the very difficult section at the back of Ezekiel, which is a very long process of this sort of thing happening, not for two verses, but for eight chapters. Um, and so I don't think this is talking about the Jerusalem temple in the city. I think every other reference to the temple, or now in Revelation, refers to the heavenly temple, and I think the same is true here. Um, so obviously there are some who've made quite a lot of this. The Times of the Gentiles, one of the charts that we saw yesterday did. You know, this is a period of... The Gentiles are trampling Jerusalem, the physical city in the Holy Land now, which will be stopped and the mosque will be replaced again with a, temp, a new temple. And That's not how I read it, which probably won't surprise you, but I just wanted to say it because that's one of the texts people use. Now, having not said much that's controversial at all today, um, something that genuinely is controversial, the first time the great city is mentioned, and she will be back, a lot in chapter 17 and 18, but the first time the great city is mentioned, it's identified as Sodom and Egypt, two places from which the people of God flee destruction, and as the city where their Lord was crucified. And that, to me, is very significant in the identification of Babylon later. Now, we don't actually hear much more about Babylon, arguably, for another six chapters. So the fact that the great city, Sodom and Egypt, the two cities from which the people of God had to flee because they were being judged by divine judgment falling out of the sky, like fire and sulfur falling down on the city and destroying it. Sodom and Egypt are the city where their Lord was crucified for John in this text. Makes it very explicit in verse 8. Symbolically called Sodom and Egypt. That is... Even that word symbolically is interesting. Do you think, are you telling me the rest of the book hasn't been symbolic? Like, what a strange time to mention that. But of course, I, I say, of course, I see a connection there even with the let the reader understand sort of thing that Matthew and Mark do, or the he who has ears, let him hear. Symbolically, Sodom and Egypt, but it is the city where the Lord was crucified. So for those like our special guest tomorrow, and I know a number of us who are like, no, 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 this is not Jerusalem, no way, this is Rome. 
to me, that's a compelling, that's a compelling reason to think you're wrong. No, I was going to say, yeah, that's one of the key reasons for me because I, this, you were introduced to the category a long time before it's explored as to any more, than who it, any more of who it is. At the very least, even if you say, well, that's not the same as Babylon, the city where the Lord is crucified has become, in a sense, Sodom and Egypt to the church. That is, Jerusalem has become a place where the faithful people of God need to flee and where God's plagues will fall as an act of judgment on those who have oppressed the equivalent of, in our day of Lot from Sodom or Moses and Aaron and, and the people of Israel from, Israel, uh, from Egypt and Goshen. So I think that's quite compelling. Of course, the response that some make is they say, actually, the city where our Lord was crucified is Rome because it's the Roman Empire that killed Jesus. But I, that, I just feel like that doesn't work with that text. I think, it's, I think everybody reading this for the next five chapters is just going, yeah, well, I know what that is, and I don't think they're going to think it's Rome. We shall see. I'm sure this will come out in debate tomorrow. Um, so, but, but that, to me, is, will become, that will pay off when we look at Babylon uh, in the, tomorrow morning. 42 months, which this is a time frame, probably if you've ever taught in any apocalyptic literature, you'll have to have wrestled with 42 months or 1,260 days, the three and a half, the time times and half a time. They all seem to refer to the same thing, which is 1,260 days is three and a half years, is 42 months, is a time times and half a time. And it always amounts to three and a half years. Symbolically, it's a half week of years, right? So a week is seven, three and a half is half a week, obviously. And it speaks of tribulation and I think in particular reminds Israel of the events of 168 to 165, which is the period of the Maccabean uprising against Antiochus Epiphanes, who came in and desecrated the temple, forced the Jews to remove the marks of circumcision, sacrificed a pig in the holy place, and caused the Jews to rise up and fight a guerrilla war against him, which they won and preserved their own kingdom for the next hundred years. It's a massive moment in Jewish history. And it's of course still celebrated to this day with the festival of Hanukkah. But that three and a half year period of tribulation at the end of which God wins for his people is really important background to the language of three and a half years anywhere it appears in the New Testament. And the image I always use on that is Numbers 9-11 in our culture. 30 years ago, you say 9-11, it doesn't mean anything to anybody. In fact, you wouldn't even know what to do with those two numbers. You think 9 plus 11, 9, what, what is that? Whereas now those numbers have stood for an entire narrative that we all remember where we were assuming we're old enough and we remember the front pages the next day and we watched the footage and we left work early and we cried and we thought what is the world coming to and we got ourselves embroiled in foreign wars and the entire world changed because of effectively we would say those two numbers then those numbers evoke a massive story of trauma and difficulty for our world and so when I'm talking about three and a half years or 1260 days I often do that just because it helps us see how numbers can carry a whole suffering tribulation story in a culture it's just that three and a half years doesn't mean much to us well actually it might in another way but it, it doesn't there because that's not our, we, we didn't have the Maccabean uprising in our story having said all of that it might well be something that happens in a sense historically in and through the 60s because many would say that the persecution under Nero did last around three and a half years and in a sense it could therefore refer to that as well which would be a case of history echoing itself not just of a literary echo but a historical one um, or the siege of Jerusalem or both but my, the main way I tend to interpret that is an allusion back to the, the tribulation of the Maccabees period 
The two witnesses, but we now need to identify them, and uh, we're going to take a break in a moment, don't worry. Um, the two witnesses, reinforcing a message with two witnesses is a really common biblical theme, especially in John's writings. So when you meet two witnesses, I don't think that means you have to figure out, well, who's the first one and who's the second one. I think the two witnesses refers to the double witness of the church testifying to Christ. And the two witnesses in Zechariah, of course, are the olive trees and the lampstands, the sons of oil who stand alongside the Lord saying, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit declares the Lord. And these two witnesses uh, effectively have Moses and Elijah-like prophesying powers, don't they? They have the power to turn rivers into blood, to strike the earth with plagues, to shut the sky, to bring fire down from heaven. That's Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah are the two witnesses on whom the witness of the church is modelled. They are the prophetic speakers who speak with such authority both in their words and their deeds that the world has to respond. And, of course, Moses and Elijah also represent the law and the prophets standing alongside Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. So I think these two witnesses are the church in our double witnessing ministry to Jesus that, in effect, inherit the legacy of the Moses and Elijah way of prophesying about God to the world and working wonders on his behalf and whose death is celebrated by the world for three and a half days until, to the horror of the world, they rise again to new life. And in that sense, what's happening is the, the, the people of the city, Jerusalem, I think to me is pretty clear, people of the city dance and celebrate over the death of the church. They are horrified to discover that new life is breathed into the church. And they have, instead of making merry and exchanging presents, they start mourning and uh, a great fear falls upon them as the church is resurrected and vindicated and raised up into heaven. At that hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. So I think these allusions refer to the double witness of the church. Uh, we testify, we suffer persecution, we rise again to new life, and of course, just as Jesus did. But an interesting little wrinkle in there is that although the translation I'm reading from, which is the ESV, says, and the, they will gaze at their dead bodies, the two witnesses have two bodies, actually in the Greek it says they have one. And so technically what it says is, and you know, the two witnesses, uh, people from the tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead body or the, the, at gaze at the body of them, which is very strange. And, and, and as a result, you almost say, hey, hang on a second, we are, this is both two and one, the church, and even are we talking about two witnesses who become one body in death? Are we talking about Jew and Gentile here? Are we talking about a twofold body that becomes one by dying and rising with Christ? I don't know, you can't prove this stuff, but it might be worth thinking about. It's interesting as well, there's a final note of grace here, in the Old Testament, the remnant of Israel is a tenth. That is, 90% get killed and 10% might get saved. It might be the remnant is 7,000 under Elijah. You know, Elijah says, I'm the only one left, and they're trying to kill me, and God says, no, there's 7,000 of them. But that's the leftovers. The vast majority are judged, and there's a tiny handful who's left who are believers. But in Revelation, grace has turned that on its head. It's actually only a tenth that die, and 90% are spared. Yeah, 7,000 people were killed. That's like, that would be a remnant number. Everybody else is preserved. So it's actually only a tenth of the city do not respond to the testimony. Again, worth in the context of Jerusalem thinking that one through, and to be honest, probably in the context of Rome thinking it through as well, if that's the view you take, it would just be worth considering. Okay, it's half past three. We will take questions at the start of the next session. That is a long session. It won't get any harder than that, I suspect. Locus scorpions after lunch. Um, well done. And we'll, yeah, four o'clock, we'll start again.